Welcome to OGGN's Mixer Connections podcast. Here each month, the insights and stories from the people and companies that make our industry mixers possible are captured while also allowing us to contribute to charity. So here's your host, Kamal Kar. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mixer Connections. My name is Kamal. I'll be your host for today. And today we have two very special guests with us, Natalia Kolofki and then Michael Hotelling. Before we go ahead and get started, I'm going to do a brief introduction on our two guests. Natalia is the Global Head of Energy and Chemical Business for Radex. With over 17 years of extensive experience, Natalia's expertise includes strategy, business development, management servicing the energy, manufacturing, oil and gas industries. And Michael is the Operations Excellence Digital Manager for ExxonMobil. In his role, he manages the global data footprint and refining chemical midstream operations. Additionally, Michael's organization represents business interests in the operation technology, process control strategy, and digital solutions, and ICS cybersecurity. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Kamal, for for having having us. us. Of course. And Natalia, I just want to go ahead and start with you. Okay. I think our audience would love to hear from you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kamal. And thank you, Michael, for accepting this invitation. We are very happy to be here with you. I'm a chemical engineer as background. I started my career in the petrochemical sector as a process engineer. So it was a very good experience at the field. And at the time, I was able to face the transition between the original transmitters and the digital capabilities that came after that. So it was a nice move. And then I transitioned my career into the digital and automation capabilities. I worked for Siemens for a while. And then I joined Radix as a startup company. And at Radix, I was running the upstream business. And then I was running the energy business in North America. And now I have the global footprint for energy. Amazing. And Michael? Sure. Again, thank you for having me. I think the way I would say in my role, in my career, I've got 32 years now with ExxonMobil. I can probably be accused of being a lifelong manufacturer Through my career, I've had the opportunity to work at nine of our facilities in a number of capacities around everything from process engineering, supply chain, even down to being a maintenance manager, an operations manager, engineering manager of one of our facilities. It's provided me, I would say, is a unique background where I have probably been accused of being one of those of master of all things, not good at any of them, right? But it's interesting, I've been in this role as the digital operations excellence manager for about, Which is uh, really the combination of all this yeah, skills, it's all right? Together, it's the perfect right? it's, role. It's coming together and where it's, you know, I've been doing this for about seven years. And I think the strength of my organization is really around having the know-how and the business use of what we're going. It's not about shiny keys, right? Yeah. This is one of the strengths that I think ExxonMobil has continued to pride itself on is are we really transforming the way we do work? And it takes what I would say is the great partnership around technology, people, and work processes in order to make it happen. Of course. And you have a very strong background when it comes to digital solutions. I want to dive a little bit deeper into it, and hopefully we can start off with, can you talk to us and explain to our audience what digital twins are and how they're related to virtual reality? (laughs) Thanks. Well, we're jumping straight into it. So... Let me try to answer it in a couple of different ways, right? Because there are a lot of terms that you'll get into when we talk about transformation that are well overused. Digital twin is actually one of them, right? If you were to go look at the number of definitions of digital twins, there's probably at least 100 different, what I would say is definitions. None of them are wrong. It's just a matter of what you're trying to represent, What we are trying to do within ExxonMobil really focused on building a digital reality ecosystem. And let me explain what that is. This is where the concept is we're moving to a more visual way of doing work. And in order to do that, if I look at technology, we're talking about developing an open asset digital twin that really represents the facilities and where we work. And I think the concept is really around the number of use cases that bring value to this. It's definitely use case driven, right? It's use case driven. The interesting part is when you talk about the word digital twin, there's a lot of cases where there's a use case and a asset to solve one case. 
our journey together has been around with industry of building an ecosystem to where, frankly, multiple use cases can be founded on top of a single asset. What I like about this concept is if you think about it, five years ago, we were talking a lot about digital twins. And then about two years ago, we are almost embarrassed of using the term. Remember that <laughs> yes, you used to yeah. do like DT yes. was a forbidden word because nobody knows how to define it. So I feel like now we are more comfortable on saying, hey, we can define because it's use case driven. So depending on use case, you're going to have multiple definitions, right? So we are more comfortable comfortable with that now, right? I agree. It's not agree. forbidden anymore. We can talk about digital twin. We, again. We, we can. We always have to come back to the use cases because I will say that in a lot of the engagements that I do with the rest of industry, the digital twin concept really comes from their lens as to, like, if I want to talk about a true first principles process simulation, yeah. well, that is a digital twin yeah. of the chemistry inside of the pipes, right? If I want to talk about getting to a representation or a VR or XR type activity, that is also a digital twin for a specific use case, yeah. right? I think the concept, and this is the part where I want to make sure as we step back and we look at our industry in oil and gas, we do spend a lot of time outside of oil and gas and looking at other industries. And just to be humble, the oil and gas industry is behind when it comes to using this technology in terms of the way we do work. The other industries are much further ahead of us, mainly out of necessity. And I think from a principle, if we really want to get to what I would say is a technical debt that is reusable for multiple use cases to add value to the customers, we have to really continue to move to a couple of principles. The first principle is really around separation of hardware and software. How do we get to where, just as Kamal, we were having the discussion earlier around some of the equipment we're using for this. They're completely separate, the software and the hardware in terms of coming together. In our industry, that is not as common as you would think. The second key principle is separating software from data. data. I think this is an area where data sovereignty, data control, that is the part that people will use over and over again. I used to sit with my own management and have the discussion around, look, the consumer lives around iPhones, et cetera. Like, what's the life of an iPhone? Is it three years? Is it two years? And then you think about applications that you kind of interact with. The important part is these applications will come and go. It's the data behind it is key. And when we think about building a digital reality ecosystem. For a digital twin that can sustain multiple use cases, we have to be open to the fact that we need to separate the hardware from the software and the software from the data. And if we do that, we will invite a lot of what I would say is value for startup companies, people to come into the ecosystem to thrive and really add value as opposed to it being a monolithic stack to where you have to pick winners and losers in terms of this digital twin, right? And it's like, that's what we're trying to move the industry with. And I would say it's the great work that ExxonMobil and Radix is doing along with our competitors that uh, associated with promoting back to the industry of here are the pinch points we have. If I truly want to get to an ecosystem where we invite competition and we invite value, we've got to be open to these key principles in order to build a foundation that we can scale. Perfect. That was a really deep dive into what ExxonMobil and Radix has been doing together, as well as what digital twins are. And just going off of, and Natalia, back to you, you work for Radix. Yeah. Can you describe what Radix is and how are you helping the industry today? Of course. So Radix is a services technology company, and we work with industrial solutions to scale and accelerate transformation within our clients. And we believe in the turning challenges into opportunities. And I think this is one of the examples where you do have a huge challenge to convey, and it demands multiple efforts from multiple companies. And that's where we uh, help companies to orchestrate all these activities and to identify what are these steps need to be taken 
taken in order to go forward with this transformation. And one of the things when you talk about transformations and what I like a lot about the way that the DRE program is architectized is the fact that we are really looking at the user experience. And if you think about every transformation that was really meaningful in the digital world, was about transformation and the user experience, right? People behaving in a different way. And I think that's the key point that we want to address here. We have to be prepared to support an organization that will, will take completely different skills from the labor force. Imagine my kids, they interact in the 3D world all the time, right? They just scroll down their hands to do everything they need to study, to watch cartoons, to play around. So many things that are changing in their minds and we have to prepare organizations to receive this workforce and they will be demanding all these capabilities that we are invading a vision like this now, right? So this is a few examples of uh, the support that we have. You know, it's funny, the way you were mentioning it brings me back to one of the analogies I have to have sometimes with inside of our company. When we talk about work processes, people and technology working together to truly transform I have to remind people, I said, look, let's think of things in your consumer lives, right? Absolutely. Like, I always so, use these yeah, examples yeah, exactly. as well, right? So, so I always go back to, it's like, how many people still go to a bank, right? In terms of, it's interesting because the demographics that we're trying to influence, it's really a bell curve because there are people that still go to banks, right? And then for my kids, I don't think my kids have ever stepped inside of a bank, They right? don't know what it is, but, right? But if you look at this and we talk about transformation, I mean, the banking industry has done an outstanding job of transforming to where they used to be building, what, multiple car lanes in terms of going through. Now, if you look at the banking industry in terms of it redefining itself in transformation, a lot of it is done, you know, software. A lot of it's done with mobility, right? Even to getting to where somebody physically gave you a paper check. Yes, paper mm -hmm. checks still exist. Yeah. Right? But if they gave you a check, you can do all of that remotely. You just but, scan it. Exactly. It's amazing. Yeah. But if you think about that as an example of where the banking industry is transformed, in the and oil and gas the industry. banking is also a very good example of a very conservative business. Oh, yeah, yes. Where security, security is a yes, top absolutely, topic. Absolutely. And that was kind of a reason why they were lagged into this. Yes. Well, transformations, right? <laughs> but if they lag, then I don't know where we are in oil and so gas. Right? Imagine so imagine if we can deal this in a space yeah. like banking and finance, there is no reason why but, can we move forward. And I think this is another good for the oil and gas industry to reflect on, right? Yeah. Is the banking industry has moved to this. And I would say this is the part where if you look at within ExxonMobil, if I look at my competitors that are also very engaged in this transformation, this isn't about building a specific pilot or R&D. All of us are doing yeah. it. All of us have been able to do it. But the part that is the most challenging and why we are not what I would say successful in the long run is we're doing this as custom build, we're doing it in our own vision because we're really not, as an industry, demanding an ecosystem that says, look, no, everybody should yeah. be able to do this. Now, I mean, if you were to go to a new bank and just say, no, no, no we're not going to offer an electronic mobility it's feature, impossible. the bank it's would impossible. never start, yeah. right? But that's not where we are in oil and gas. Yeah. In oil and gas, we still have very fragmented, what I would say, long-held practices, design, and operation that we're trying to influence. Yeah. And I think the key will be is doing this together as an industry Understanding, do, do we have the same vision of how we will change our people, our work processes and technology to really meet the demands of tomorrow when yeah. we talk about Yeah, and it's people-driven, right? It's, oh, yeah. it's going to be led by the people that will be working in the staff and that will demand this kind of interactions the same way in the, your example in yep. banking, right? Of course. And just to follow up with that, that's a very interesting comment that you just made about the industries and comparing that to the banking industry. So why do you think that's the case that banking or other industries have been so fast to adapt to these fast changes while oil and gas, even though we have all of this wave of energy transition coming in. So we're transforming, but when it comes to technology, we're quite not there yet. Why do you think it's holding us back? It's a very good question, Kamal. I think 
the other industries, it was an imperative for them to go change. And I think it's an area where, look, I mean, I spend some time with the DOD in terms of the work that they do in terms of training. If I go look at finite manufacturing, right, or even automotive. Automotive is another good analogy to have the discussion. Um, If you look at the pressures that they have gone through through their own transformation, you look at the tools that they have been using, designing finite activities, I'm sorry, but there's probably not people out there drafting with drafting boards and pencils and erasers doing this work. They were always doing this in the base case. They were forced to do this. If I go to the airline industry or into the defense industry where you talk about using multiple suppliers to build the world scale fighter jets that we have out there. That's not a single company. It's multiple companies coming together based on standards in order to move that forward. The challenge we've had in oil and gas is that, to be honest, I have some assets that are approaching 100 years old. Yeah. There aren't many auto manufacturing plants that have 100-year-old, you know, when they retool for a new car, a new vehicle, they go through a lot of this change. This is one of the reasons why I would say oil and gas is lagging. Now, if I look at the upstream side, Life cycle is longer, so you have less renovation of Right. But if I go to the upstream side in terms of... There is a lot more technology that's been introduced because of that life cycle, yeah. right? If I think about the new rigs that are coming on, the, yeah. the floating or uh, FPSO, rigs. Or yeah, FPSO, yeah. 20 years exactly. life cycle. Yeah. There's a lot of technology that is in there. But if I go to the last person, last row within our industry, there are still assets that are 50, 75 years old. And it's that change management that is a key is one of the reasons why I would say that it's a lagger. I think the other one, to be honest with you, and this is a culture thing, I remember having this discussion debate inside one of our plants where we wanted to give our technicians and employees mobility devices to do their job. And it was amazing of the culture change because people are like, oh, you're giving them comfort things. Look, I'll go spend $1,000 on a fluky meter for them to go do a measurement. But a mobility device, which all of us in our personal lives are critical in terms, at least for me, in terms of how do I keep and move, getting that introduced into our culture has been a huge barrier to where it's like, no, no, no. I don't want you to look at that phone or that mobility device. Look at it as a tool to do work. Yeah. Right? And really, if you think about our digital transformation, that stigmatism still exists, right? It still exists to where it's like, no, 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 let's be clear. I mean, I had an interview with one of the technicians at one of our plants, and we were sitting in there talking about the transformation and the work that we were doing. It was kind of funny. He's like, Mike, I don't want to offend you, but he's like, why can't I do my entire job on my iPad? And it's like one of those things you're like, yeah, that's a good question, Mm -hmm. right? He's like, why, if I look at our work process around, I've got desktops, I've got systems, we got paper, we're printing. He's like, tell me why I can't do my entire job from my iPad. I would be much more productive. Like I don't need to go around. Yeah. And I think this is the younger generation sitting there demanding, you know, around, we really do need to rethink of how we're doing this. If I tie it back to the digital reality ecosystem and I tie it back to a more visual way of working, this is the challenge that we're going to have with our industry. To be frank, I mean, a lot of the discussions I like to have with my organization is how many people go through the 65-page OEM manual on, uh, I see you have an Apple here, like, did you read the full OEM guide before you started it up, Kamal? Just press start and there we go. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But if you think about that and you think of the technology and the complexity, our workforce of tomorrow are demanding the same experience. Yeah, that's true. But if I think about where we are in terms of getting there, we've got room to go. I mean, this is an area where, I mean, look, we can talk about generative AI, we can talk about ML, chat GBT. You know, these are all what I would say, there is likely elements of that that are in the future. But I think we're still back in some cases struggling of 
giving people iPhones or iPads yeah. in order to do their yeah. work. It just gives us a little humbleness around where we think we are with our digital transformation. And then you sit back a little bit of reality. It says that we've got a lot of work to do in terms oh, of getting there. For sure. And then having an iPhone and an Apple laptop, the AirDrop feature has been amazing. So making things just so much more efficient, just so much more closer to do and then you're not even thinking about it so stuff like that i think innovations is something that we are not even thinking about when it comes to oil and gas or or these but tiny should, little right? things exactly. we were talking about that so how do we create an environment with the devices with the things that you are pleasure to work with yeah, right exactly. like your phone because this is not only work right you entertain here you interact you are more productive with this i guess this is the challenge that we have to not have this disruption between your personal life and your professional mm. life. Yeah. And especially in oil and gas where you're losing so many talents because they are enchanted by so many possibilities in terms of technology. We have to provide the same kind of environment where they can create, they can be innovative, and they can bring new ideas and to be inspired by what they are doing here, right? Yeah. And I think this is the area where if I think of the work that ExxonMobil and Radix are doing together, it's really helping us define some of the guardrails that makes us agnostic to the hardware. Back to the two principles. Because you'll be amazed. I mean, it's interesting to watch, but every supplier that comes to the oil and gas, they all want to be the backbone of everything, right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. we are open as long as you use our backbone. I mean, I've had companies tell me that. And I'm like, in order for us to move forward, similar to the experiences we have, we want to build an environment where multiple suppliers can come in. If we're going to truly create value and accelerate, it's got to be around standards-based, open, interoperable in order for us to grow. Otherwise, what will happen is other companies, including ExxonMobil, will struggle to use their scale and capability across the globe if every single application is its own bespoke, customized solution. Because from a total cost of ownership, we will struggle to maintain what I would say is those transformational threads and still be able to meet what I would say is a return for our operation. This, again, is why the call to industry around there are areas where we do have standards. And I think I've sat with some of my competitors and sometimes it's not a standards issue. It's the fact that we just actually don't follow the standard, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, that's a different behavior that we're trying to highlight and think about how we can improve. But there are other elements when we talk about an open asset digital twin where the standards don't yet exist. And this is an area where our call back to the industry for our suppliers and consumers is let's talk about that. Let's get it out in terms of because there's many industry standard bodies that are interested in weighing in this. Last night at the reception yeah. that we had uh, hosted by Radix, it was one where I literally had another supplier mention to me saying, well, Michael, nobody else is asking for this. But they should. And of course, I take it with a little bit of grain of salt. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, okay, maybe it's not a problem of asking. It's more maybe on the listening side yeah. of what it means. And I do think, in all honesty, I do think we've got a ways to go to create clarity in this space because yeah. getting to where we're missing a standard that would hinder us. One of my colleagues from another company, I'm going to quote him and his comment was, you know, Michael, I'm fully aligned with your vision. He said, but in his mind, standards are accelerators. And I understand his point of view because all of us could go build what I would say is this digital open asset for a single facility but if I want to do that at scale, having standards that plug and play are really accelerators in order to get there. Yeah. And I really do think that is a key element that we need to continue to communicate, embrace where we have gaps, and then as an industry work together on that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, we mentioned uh, on the industry transformation, this is something that has already happened, right? 
these companies that are very conservative and they are still trying to figure out their business model in this world where we are demanding specific capabilities of integration, I think they will have to adapt in some ways. And I don't think this is something that they can avoid to happen. I still believe that there is very interesting business models for oh, these companies absolutely. with their amazing technologies. Absolutely. And we are not denying their amazing developments that they've been doing yeah. within these tools. We just want to make sure that this is interoperable, right? Yes. And that you can work with multiple technologies at the same time. It, this is an area where, I mean, on that specific issue, right? Go back to the other industries. We talk about automotive and finite manufacturing, right? You talk about CAD models that are used to construct and build. Those will always have a place yeah. in the future. One of the things that is part of our culture and change is understanding is like, even in oil and gas, you may have a CAD model that is kind of put together. It's helping people then make the transition of that is built for a specific use. And that use will likely continue to use for that particular to exist capital. longer, yeah. yeah. However, if I truly want to move to a more visual way of working, using a CAD representation of an asset misses out on thousands and thousands of contextualizations of items that may not exist in the cat. Yeah. And this is where, where I'd say technology, whether it's drones or some of the dogs and robots that are out there, where if you look at the cameras and the power that you have, I mean, anybody that can get LIDAR, 3D capture, and you think about that around, well, wait a second, we have capability for additional capture that is beyond a CAD representation. It's like in this building, I'm sure there's an architectural drawing, right, that was built when they constructed it. But if I look at this room and I sit there and say, well, look, the beautiful wallpaper and the books that are behind us, yeah. et cetera, if I'm asking somebody to come in and do work, am I going to give them the architectural blueprint where when they walk in visually, they'd be like, well, this doesn't look like the yeah. blueprint. It's be more around how do you overlay those two together? Again, the importance of engineering drawings, engineering design is a critical component but it's not the component. And I think it's a... Not for operations, no, right? No, no, yeah. that's right. Because none of us, if we're out driving around, we're not using the design of the roads Road. and the bridges, yeah. right? It's mm -hmm. we're using our sight and visualization. This is the key element when we talk about moving to a visual way of working. How do we do that in an environment that is seamless? So that our users, our consumers of this technology can really adopt it to change the way they work. Mm -hmm. And that is the critical part. Of course. And where do you see this in five to 10 years when it comes to VR, when it comes to digital twins? We talked about the past, about how things are changing, how other industries have evolved and adopted actually very fairly quickly. It's like one time you're sending in paper checks and the other time everything's on your phone. Right. So what do you think is the future when it comes to VR and, and digital twins? A good question. I think it's one of those where I tell my team at times, they love it, where I will come in in the morning, I'll send them a quick IM, right? Be like, I had another dream last night. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and my staff's like, oh no, oh, here we go again. Right? Go. And so we get together, a quick team meeting, and they're like, okay, tell us what the dream said this time, right? <laughs> and I just said, I think it's an area from a vision. I do think what we will find is that more and more of the tools that we use, the technology that we use is going to enhance to where we will change the way we work. I do believe we will come to a, an ecosystem that will invite hundreds of suppliers for specific use cases yeah. to come in and out in terms of doing work. I mean, I'll give you a specific. We were having a discussion around dynamic simulation. Yeah. And I'm not talking about chemical engineering, first principle simulation. I'm talking about behavioral dynamic simulation. It's like one of these, I like to have the discussion with our suppliers of like, let's take a mutual aid response from, you know, if you are involved in the first responders, right, in terms of doing the work, how do I make sure that they are trained and quite frankly, giving them the tools they need to be the most mm -hmm. effective, right? In terms of, I have a lot of credibility for our first responders. But if I look at the way we do the training today, and I look at the tools, and then I think about, 
my son will sit there and say, well, he's on his Oculus and he's playing Minecraft with his friends. And if you look at the gaming industry where they have players all across the globe coming together into an ecosystem and the behavior of one impacts the outcome of another. And I think when we talk about VR and we talk about the capability, I do see a world where we will enrich as a commonality to where people can do dynamic simulation and use that as training as a measure of competency as opposed to what I would say is the old, here's your checklist and paper. I think our consumers, the generation that is coming up and working with us, will demand that of this is how we can get faster, better decision-making, more confidence in terms of our ability to do greater things than we currently do using technology. And I think this is where getting to this ecosystem, getting to what I would say is moving to that visual way of working will be a part of the future of oil and gas. And it is amazing how much this hardware evolves every day, right? We were talking yesterday about this new hardware that you can create a true virtual experience with all full senses get connected, which is something that inimaginable these days, but it's available, right? It's about us creating a compelling use case that is financially supported and it's a possibility. So if we think about it and we mentioned 3D models, right? 20 years ago, that was the great impact for the CapEx investments, right? So we put this effort and that is a huge amount of performance improvement within these tools. And until today, we hand over to operations, sometimes these documents in paper, in 2D or a dumb just visualization tool without any ability of interaction. So these technologies are available, right? And it's just a matter of us understanding how important they are and how they actually create the value later on for operations, right? And I think this is an area, Natalia, where we have to be bold and quite frankly challenge what I would say is long long-standing culture of work. In some of this, I'm not trying to be facetious, but it's like if I go into one of our facilities and I sit with senior management, I say, well, look, what if I told you that in the future, nobody is going to have a radio? Everybody looks at me with like, Michael, what are you talking about? And I said, no, no, let me just use this as an example. If you go into any oil and gas facility, everybody is walking around with a radio to communicate, right? Because communications is a key way in which we say And it's understanding as reliable, right? Yes, it is. But then you ask yourself around, well, do I see a world in the future where maybe you don't need radios? Why can't we get to where, you know, think of a digital twin or an open asset digital twin where I know where stuff is coming together. Like think of the drive in here today. Did someone call me on the radio and says, hey, there's a wreck on, yeah. I, you know, on Beltway 8, which happens often, right? No, I didn't get a radio communication. The technology I was using to find where we are today, mm-hmm. guess what? It was very clear, kind of popped up and said, hey, you're about to get into traffic. And think of that from a communication standpoint. Then ask yourself, well, why in uh, the way we do work in oil and gas, why don't we have that same aspiration? Why can't I use a platform to where disparate pieces of information come together to inform, right? That is where I think, Kamal, where we think about the future and the vision of how we can use this technology to truly change the way we do work. It's that is what I see is in the next five to 10 years. Natalia, just wanted to hear more on aspiration when it comes to professionals that are joining into this workforce. What advice would you offer the individuals that are interested in developing the digital twins or developing the VR world in this space? Yeah, so this is so important because we've been talking a lot about where do we find the talents. And in my opinion, I think the most important capability is really this multi-skill ability to integrate multiple topics into this subject. It's about technology, but it's also about the process itself. It's about understanding the impact in the business. It's about integrating the maintenance capabilities, the process that are behind. So I guess it's this holistic view. So it's pretty much being an expert without 
not knowing deeply anything, which is kind of an interesting approach. But I think the world tomorrow is going to be from the generalists other than the deep dive experts, because this is really what we are lacking these days. It's uh, this ability to integrate multiple skills. And honestly, in a world where we see lots of things that can be automated, I think it's when we have all this ambiguity between yeah. multiple topics that they interact, but they also conflict is where humans will thrive, in my opinion. So that's the ability for the future. I'll answer it a little bit differently. I'll just share the story. I mean, and I feel like I'm going to date myself by saying this story, <laughs> right? But if I go back into the 70s and you looked at who are the people that had calculators, or if I go into the 80s, who are the people that had computers? Mm-hmm. It was very focused in terms of a discipline. I attended a university, which in the country, one of the claims of fame as the engineering Clarkson University was growing, everyone that walked in the door got a PC. And this is back in the 80s. And you sat there and said, oh, wow, right? Not just computer science or computer engineering. Everyone got a PC because it was around, no, this is what I would say is a fundamental where everybody will have the opportunity to interact with technology. I think about that a little bit because mm-hmm. when we talk about AR, VR, et cetera, it's not for what I'd say is a siloed profession. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it is for the broad sense in terms of where we're going. Now, the advice I would have is if I look at the oil and gas industry, the stuff that we do and the work that we do cannot be done without very disciplined, functional excellence in terms of their skills, whether chemical engineers, mechanical, electrical, computer engineers. Strong background. What I tell young employees that I mentor is like, I would want you to be functionally excellent in your skill. Because this is where I look at myself of like, I don't need a generalist. I need people that are very functional, excellent. However, I need people that are functionally excellent in their training that also have a flair and understanding with technology. And I would say this is an area where if you want to talk about drones and you want to talk about dogs, et cetera, there's a slice of competency where you need to have that to make those move forward. But the area that I see the most opportunity in is utilizing the technology to solve your base business problem. And in order to do that, you've got to be functionally excellent in your, I would say, core engineering and want to interact and be open to be curious in terms of the technology. To me, that is the advice I would share with people is I hope that we encourage more and more people sticking with the curriculum of classic engineering because it is needed. I need people to understand why. I need people to understand the what business impact they're making, but I also need them to have an open to where they're embracing the technology and thinking about how can I use that to make things better. What tip would you give for this teenager that is spending 16 hours a day gaming? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well... I'm probably not. I mean, the parenting that I have with my kids, right? It's like, I wish there was a do-over at some point, right? Because it's funny is I use a lot of the analogies today when we talk about open asset digital twin. I was like, look, in terms of the use case you want to support, I'm happy to hire my son out to build you the Minecraft version of the Mm -hmm. plant, right? I said, and don't get me wrong, there's value in a Minecraft representation or a portal of information, but it doesn't really support all the different use cases. So my son is actually studying to be a pilot. And it's one of those where their instructor said, well, it's a good thing he spent all this time on flight simulation. I'm like, okay, that's not what what I needed to hear. right? (laughs) Uh, But I do think this is an area where, and whether it's gaming, right? Because that's not the only technology, right? We were talking earlier around uh, DMX 512 and lighting. I mean, I have a number of people that are curious with Raspberry Pis in yeah. terms of technology to do some very bizarre things. Mm-hmm. What I would say is that experience in terms of entertainment on a computer device, I think it is becoming a core of our workforce moving forward. But so are these other things, right? And I think what I would, like you said, let's make sure that people are feel comfortable to interact with this technology, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. 
And just kind of piggybacking off of your comments on advice and what you would tell the younger people coming into the industry, specifically whenever we talk about designers, how do you think they can optimize the user experience when interacting with digital twins in VR? Oh, good question. The interesting part in our industry is we have a broad range of users and the UX or interaction is often defined by the person giving the feedback. And I'll share a story. I had an example where I told the story earlier around one of the talented technicians of the plants that said, Michael, I want to do my entire job on this iPad, right? And so then we enabled to where they were pulling up a PNID of a facility on their iPad, right? And it was like watching this person like with their fingers moving it in terms of getting where they want. They were like, man, this is great. Literally an hour later, I had a person come in from a different generation, basically going, I I can't see (laughs) anything in terms of using this, right? And I use that because I think it's interesting that the demographics of the workforce has a very wide range of UX. There are people that, quite frankly, if I show them a VR or AR set, it's like, how do you keep your hands off it? But I do have other areas where people will keep their mobility phone in the closet. Yeah. Because they're like... It's overwhelming. Right, it's too scary. Of, yeah. I think you'll hear about user-defined experiences and user design, which is great. I think the challenge that we have to understand is that in our industrial work environment, we are probably not going to be the Unity, the NVIDIAs out there to where we spend all of our entire on the user experience. We have a job, we have a business to run. And this is finding that balance to where I would say is, what is the user experience to where it builds the capability but it's probably not going to be the one where I get the notification or the Twitter or the X and or also communication back enough, and forth. Right? Simple enough yeah. for you to do your work efficiently, yep. right? I guess this is one of the components as well. I often examine my own personal taste, like my patience for an app on a phone. It's lucky if you get two tries. If I download an app and you interact with it and you're like, okay, delete, right? Yeah. Let me download uh, another yeah, of one. Course. In our industry you're probably not going to get to where every company is invested on 20 apps to meet the specific user, which makes it very important of us truly understanding the personas, the work that we're trying to go do, back to that functional excellence I was telling you about. We really truly need to understand all of the elements of how we do work, and then quite frankly, come up with that user design experience that meets that business capability. Moving on into, and Natalia, I wanted to touch on just the race when it comes to net zero. Over here right now, we've been talking a lot about oil and gas, about how things have been transitioning in this industry. When it comes to the bigger transition, which is at the moment, the talks is net zero, is talks about how do you think that when it comes to the energy and chemical companies, how is Radex helping these organizations create pathways to successfully reaching their sustainability goals? Oh, that's a tough one, but <laughs> I think it's a really important question. So these days we see this challenge and uh, most of our clients are facing the challenge of balancing all these objectives. So it's pretty much these days the ability of our clients to generate cash flow, cash flow to support all these investments and all these initiatives that are running in parallel. The view of portfolio diversification. So today we see companies like Shell and BP and Exxon looking at their portfolio and trying to understand what are going to be the markets that they are going to attend towards the energy transition, either through different molecules, also different business models, so many possibilities into this portfolio analysis. And the third one is on the decarbonization of the existing assets, because there is a huge potential Mm -hmm. of emissions reduction just by taking a look on their own operations these days. So as one of the examples, one of the topics that we've been touching a lot is on the emissions perspective. If we think about it, Lots of our clients are still managing this data through Excel data and outdated. They are looking into one year 
after and just uh, trying to understand where they are going to be. So today it's super manual, super demanding, and they still don't have inaccurate data for that. So I see lots of our clients is evolving into the direction of getting meaningful data and starting to work on this journey or starting working with multiple scenarios to forecast what the emissions are going to look like. And this will also support on these streams of portfolio diversification and to decide on what are going to be the next steps that they're going to take. Of course. We're coming a little bit closer towards the end of our podcast. And I really wanted to throw out a fun question for you guys. Sure. So if you were to go back in time and talk to your 17, 18 year old self, what things would you do differently? And what things would you do the exact same? Wow. You want to start? (laughs) The things that I would do exactly the same. This is an area where my wife and I joke about this all the time is that I think when we were 17, 18, we didn't have the burden of everything being visual and mobile phones. And I'm not going to say I was always a model son or a college (laughs) student, but I also am confident that I don't have a huge digital footprint from that time. And I think this is an area where, honestly, society has still got to grapple with is the generation today, they are saddled with, there is nothing that they do that doesn't create a digital footprint. And I think this is something that we just got to continue to think about moving forward. So that, for me... When you had 17, you wish you knew better about this? No, no, I'm just glad that we didn't have the technology to record all the stupid things that they have done, right? So I think that is, thinking about it today, if I look at a lot of the societal problems that we have today, I do think that's an area we've got to help reinvest the importance of the digital thread, your footprint of what to go do. Yeah, that's a good one because I, we see the impact on the 17-year-old, oh yeah, yeah. all the social I, media I, yes. pressure. I mean, if I look yeah. at the pressure, if I look I'm glad at, that I didn't have either, right? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, something I didn't have to worry about. I think the other thing that I, Natalia and I talked about this yesterday, I actually grew up on a farm and it was one of those where on a farm, you are a jack of all trades, you're a master of nothing, right? And I wish in terms of I would been able to do that for broader kids, et cetera, to where they have the ability to experience. And quite frankly, what I would say is fail in a safe environment. I mean, this is why yeah, I'm, this I am still there. a scout master, yeah. assistant scout master, because I truly believe that providing an environment where People can grow up in a safe environment and have these experiences. Not all of them will work out well, but recognizing it's okay to fail while they're learning. I think that's the area that I want to continue to have moving forward. What I would do differently, (laughs) there's probably a lot of things, but I think I was... I hate to go back to the old Dilbert. Oh, Your son has the knack. Like, I don't know if people still know it's kind of old, but where you take things apart and they never go back together. It's one of those where I wish I would have stuck more doing that, right? If I go back and talk about some of the computer languages that I learned and not being an IT professional, it's one of those where I probably would have spent a little bit more time because I see that... If I think about the future around ML and I talk about AI, et cetera, that will have a broader, broader impact in society. That's something I would have said that if I had known that was going to be there, I would have spent more time maybe learning around some of those fundamentals. And I think this is the, uh, Natalia said this many times, I think I would probably continue to advocate, I do want people that have general experiences across a whole multitude, right? I mean, we do a lot of stuff that is focused on STEM, but I will tell you that the arts is a critical component. Yeah, Defining of who we are, defining our ability to work with people, the arts has a lot to offer. And it's probably something I probably would have continued in uh, some of my passion with arts because I do think that continues to make people well-rounded. Yeah, that's super nice. So I was agreeing with you on the things that you wish 
you did differently because I had the impression that when I was 17, I was too worried about my objectives, my goals. So I was super focused on studying and getting good grades and performing in college and those kind of things. And I think that I missed some of the hobbies that I have. And I wish I could had a better view that maybe the grades were not that important, you know, later on. That's my regret. But you also never know what would happen if you don't dedicate all this time. I guess the things that I would say for my 17-year-old to keep doing is actually believing that with hard work, you know, put some efforts on it and the results will come. And I think I had this when I was really young and I still believe it, right? It's pretty much everything that we do is not a rocket science, right? It's just sit on the chair, study it, and you are going to get along. It's going to be fine. And I think it's a good tip, especially these days where we see so many young people suffering with anxiety, like the pressure of failing. And honestly, if you dedicate time, the odds of failure are very, very low, in my opinion. I think you're right. And I think this is an area, whether it's a manager or supervisor, mm-hmm. a parent, right, in terms or a mentor is, you know, I had a wise professor tell me once, it's like, Michael, there is no shortcut to being proficient. And I think this is an area where we ask people about whether it's technology or it's the functional excellence within a capability There is some hard sweat equity that needs to go into it to understanding. There are a lot of protégés that walk into a room and all of a sudden they know everything, but that's not the average person. And I do think this is an area where we encourage our kids and people that we mentor at work is have patience. And I think it's an area of if you put in the effort and you work hard at it, it will come, right? Exactly. And I think that's an area where, you know, my parents, it was one of those to where I played sports in high school. I'm not good at any of them, right? <laughs> but it was one of those where being a part of a team and working hard for something, and sometimes you won, sometimes you didn't, but it was about playing the game. It's not all of this, like, you have to win at everything. No, no. Part of this is the experience. Yeah. Part of this is how it shapes you. And I would say that that's an area that we've got to continue to make sure we have is the patience that technology, we all get frustrated. Like I get frustrated. We'd be like, ah, I'm locked out of my computer again. Right? Yeah. I mean, but it's getting through that as a area where we have to embrace that more of that is going to take place. Right. Yeah. I love it. I love what you guys just said. And honestly, you took away a lot from the advice that you give to your younger self. Honestly, I don't want this conversation to end. (laughs) I love listening to you guys. But sadly, I think we're coming towards the end of this wonderful conversation. And I would love to thank all of our listeners. Any last thoughts? Any last advices? So first of all, thank you very much for having us. I think this is an opportunity where, you know, if I go back to we talk about technology and business transformation. I'm very pleased that we continue use, you know, forums, podcasts to really share our vision because I do think it's going to take all of us together. It's going to take the industry, business owners, as well as suppliers coming together, aligning on a vision. And I think it's an area where what I would just encourage is that we need to keep sharing what I would say is the vision of tomorrow because that's the only way we're going to get there. Absolutely. And I echo Michael's words. And I want to thank you, Kamal and OGGN, for the opportunity and Michael for being here with me. And I guess this is a journey, right? We're all working together. We still have plenty of achievements to perform. And these days, I think with all these transformations that we're seeing, business model and competition, we don't know yet who is competing with us. We see now oil and gas companies moving into technology services as well. So, so many things. Things are changing. And I guess it's up to us to be flexible enough and to understand these challenges and turning them into opportunities. Of course, of course. And I love that. So thank you guys again for this wonderful conversation, Natalia and Michael. It was a pleasure to be sitting here and listening to what you have to say about yourselves, your careers, and then the industry. Learned a lot, and hopefully our viewers have taken away a lot from this as well. We'd love to thank our sponsors, Radex and then Carbeck Brewing, for always making this show possible. And as always, part of our proceeds will be donated towards RedM. The links for RedM, Radex, and Carbeck Brewing are in our show notes, so please go ahead and check that out. 
And until next time, thank you all and take care. Thank you. Thank you. Check us out next month for another engaging episode of the Mixer Connections podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.